Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined in the remote recording studio today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So on this week's show, which is our first of the new year, we spoke with Sabrina Imbler about her debut essay collection, How Far the Light Reaches, which explores connections between aquatic creatures, really strange aquatic creatures, and Sabrina's memoiristic journey through questions of race, sexuality, and human connection. So I'm excited about that, but I'm also excited to wish you a happy new year, Medea, and happy new year to Kate and Absentia. Happy new year, Eric. Do you have any new year's resolutions? Yeah, this New Year's, I, ooh, I loved that kind of um, Natasha Leone uh, turn that your that your voice took. I'm, I'm sure yeah. it 100. I lit a cigarette and I wanted to get this conversation going. Yeah, exactly. All right, New Year, New You, honey. Um, so my New Year's resolution is to kind of lean into more positivity and kind of, you know, getting myself more organized, which is always the thing that I'm looking to do, but definitely just lean into that kind of, okay, it's going to be good. And let's be proactive, not reactive. So that's my vibe for 2023. What about you? That's a good vibe. My resolution is it's to be more intentional with my time Mm. because when I'm doing baby care, it's just easy to just kind of like let the time pass by, yes. yeah. you know, watching her play or watching her eat or watching her sleep. I don't really watch her sleep, but you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> no judgments. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's my New Year's resolution to be a little bit more mindful in, in the ways that I spend my day. All right. Well, let's take that with us. And hopefully viewers are making their way through their own New Year's resolutions this week. And we will jump into our conversation with Sabrina Imbler. Let's do it. We have Sabrina Imbler with us on the line today. Sabrina is a Brooklyn-based writer and science journalist whose work has appeared in The New York Times, The Atlantic, Catapult, and Sierra. Sabrina also covers the Creature Beat over at Defector, where they write about the weirdness and wonder of our planet's fauna, including stories about turtle vocalizations, the different penises of similar-looking grass mice, snake clitorises, the adorability of ancient wombats, and much more. These stories no doubt served as an early basis for the book Sabrina joins us to talk about today, their debut essay collection, How Far the Light Reaches. Part creature feature, part memoir, each essay explores the life of a unique sea animal as a means of illuminating key experiences from Sabrina's own life story. Across essays, the life of a Chinese sturgeon is a catalyst for understanding a grandmother, a whale necropsy for understanding a dying romance, or a bloom of slippery salps who help us understand the ephemeral joys of queer gathering. Across the collection, they ask us to think about how our lives mirror those of the animals around us, especially the ones that so often escape our gaze, just like the darker facets of our own personalities and histories. Welcome to the show, Sabrina. It's a pleasure to have you. So Sabrina, the first essay in this collection, it begins with you as a 13-year-old going to Petco and trying to convince strangers not to buy goldfish. It's a great origin story for the collection, But I wonder if you can tell us why you were interested in this when you were so young. What brought you to the subject of sea creatures in general? Thank you for that question. I guess I have two competing theories. One is that I grew up in California and we had field trips to the tide pools when I was growing up. I would go on vacation to like snorkel. And I think 
the ocean was one of the first places where I really found reverence and like a connection with the natural world, which I think is also related to the fact that I have really bad hay fever and pollen allergies. So when I would like go to a beautiful alpine vista, I would like be sneezing and hacking the whole time. So the ocean was like a place where I as a creature could thrive alongside nature. But my other theory is that my parents decorated my nursery when I was a baby. They decorated it under the sea themed. So I had like a fish mobile, I had fish curtains, I had fish pillows. My first toy was Flounder from The Little Mermaid. So sometimes I'm like, do I have free will or was I brainwashed? That's so funny. Did you find out about that later on? I guess I I kind of knew it growing up because my dad would make photo albums and I would like see these images. And I think later on when I really sort of decided to lean into the ocean as a primary obsession, I think everything clicked. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about is there's a number of the essays in which the animals that you're exploring are kind of sites for queer affinity or intelligibility or recognition. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about that and also whether or not sea creatures just, you know, there's this thing that we tend to say, which is like, nature is queer. You know, like it's just, there's lots of things that either queer is not making sense or queer is getting put together in unique and unexpected and kind of chaotic ways. But so I'll just put it this way, like are sea creatures just kind of queer? That is a great question. And I do think that sea creatures are queer, are gay in like whatever sense you want to say it, which I think is reflected in the fact that there are so many memes of like people connecting with sea creatures. The ocean has such a broader understanding and space for different ways of having sex, different ways of being a certain sex than Mm. we humans do. And so, you know, for a lot of fish, it's very natural for them to transition from one sex to another, like clownfish. They live in these societies with one very large female and then like a bunch of other males. And then when the oldest female sort of leaves or dies, then the next largest fish will become the dominant female. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are so many examples. Seahor- of- like the male seahorse that gives birth is another one exactly. that I always think of. Yeah. Yeah, or like the deep sea anglerfish, which is, you know, this beautiful, well, beautiful in my eyes, <laughs> but this sort of um, gnarly looking fish uh, that the females are very large and then the males are very, very tiny and will sort of latch onto the females and become absorbed into her body. And so she can store like several males for the rest of her life and they sort of give her sperm. I have a friend who's like that. <laughs> Yeah, so the ocean, it's a very queer space, like biologically speaking. But I think something that I was thinking about while writing this book and also while just working as a science journalist in the writing of this book was the ways that we often talk about creatures that we find strange, especially creatures in the deep sea, which feature quite prominently in the book. And, you know, the deep sea, it's a place without light, without plants. It's a place that we humans, I think, fear and find repulsive in a lot of ways. And I found in just reading about the ways that we talk about the deep sea, like there was sort of this language of like, these fish are living on the scraps of society. Like these fish have never seen the sun. And it reminded me a lot of the ways that queer communities live on the edges of places that we would consider oases and sort of cobble together life and meaning through unorthodox ways. And so I think there was sort of a connection beyond just the facts of animal sex for me, of just the ways that we talk about strange 
strangeness and queerness. And I found that I really related to the deep sea creatures. It's so interesting to hear you say that because I think that for most people, you know, it's much easier to relate to mammals. It's much easier to relate to, to like a bear or, you know, like a mama bear, you know, like that extremely annoying phrase that has taken hold of our culture. So it's interesting to hear you say about relating to these creatures that we often can't see or that it's very difficult to see. It's very difficult to reach. It's difficult to know anything about them. Can you talk a little bit about your process of finding out more about these creatures that you sort of deep dive into? When I first started this book, I was working as a product reviewer and I was reviewing like toasters and face masks and air conditioner brackets. And I also had recently had this part-time job where I would write aggregate of clickbait content for an ocean nonprofit. That was my only route into sort of science journalism and like the first step that I took into trying to be someone who wrote about animals. And my stories were very they're very bad and they've all been purged from the internet, but I wrote things like, you'll never guess why this seal wound up on this farm. And then the answer, it's like, it walked there or like this handicapped goldfish got a new lease on life, or you'll never guess what like a dolphin vagina looks like. And so in that process of that job, which I had for like a year or so, I just learned about so many different sea creatures specifically that I, some of them I had heard of before, some of them were entirely new to me. And I feel like I just sort of compiled this Rolodex of creatures whose lives I was so fascinated by, but didn't really have the proper avenue to write about them. Like I could, you know, write my little blogs, aggregating real reporting at the time, but that was how I first learned about the mother octopus, Granuladini Boreo Pacifica, who is features prominently in an essay. And I was so touched by her story of brooding her eggs for four and a half years without eating, but all I could do is write like a 300 word blog <laughs> about the science behind it. And I found myself sort of longing to do justice to the stories that I encountered. And I think in this process, while I had that job, I encountered a lot of the same animals over and over again. And I think I began to develop like resistance towards these, like the hot girls of the ocean. So, you know, every single week there'd be so many whale stories, so many dolphin stories. And I found myself sort of growing tired of the sort of breathless coverage that these conventionally attractive animals like often get. And I think I found new connections and tenderness with the weirdos. So one of the struggles when we're writing about things that are not human, but we can only access their thoughts or feelings as humans, right, is the anthropomorphization problem. So there are a couple of moments where you do as you're kind of, because, you know, these are literary essays, so you are anthropomorphizing your subjects, projecting kind of feelings, desires, and experiences onto them that we don't necessarily have access to. And I'm just curious how you negotiate yourself, but also in writing, that animal-human chasm in experience. And cognition is a complicated thing because, like, for example, the octopus has incredible cognitive powers, right? But let's take, for example, the cuttlefish. Like, what if a cuttlefish recognizes their world in a radically different way than we do? How did you negotiate what effectively is a crisis of connection, even as you're working through these essays to establish these bonds? It's a great question. And 
one that I've thought about for my whole career as someone who loves to write about animals. When I first was starting out in science journalism and interning at Scientific American, I remember an editor was sort of talking about the work of a science journalist that I really, really admired who writes a lot about animals. And they were like, I don't approve of his work because like there's so much anthropomorphism. And I feel like in that moment, I was like, oh no, like, is my read of the situation wrong? Like, is my taste bad? Am I not understanding something? And I think it's been nice to see over the course of my career, I think people become more open to certain forms of anthropomorphism because I do think it is a very natural instinct that we have to find connection and find meaning with creatures. And that is, I think, my primary goal of the book, right, is like, to remind us of like the common things that we need to survive, of our common sort of like striving for survival. And I think when I was writing the book, I wanted to be careful about the kind of anthropomorphism that I used, right? So when I talk about some whales in the book who there's this one famous whale named Telequa, who is a killer whale living in the Pacific Northwest. And she grieved a calf that she lost for I think like 17 days and just carried the body of her calf across the ocean. And her story resonated with so many people. And that, you know, is such a clear indicator of like, this is a shared grief that we can understand as humans. Like this is a grief that she is experiencing. There are obviously like different contours and different textures, but this is something that I feel like I can relate to. And then there were other, I think, moments in the book where I wanted to be very clear about the metaphor stopping short or trying to not sort of ascribe animals with a malicious intent, I guess, as I do sort of use them as a lens to understand parts of my own life. So in an essay about experiences with sexual assault, I write about the sand striker, which is a worm that like lives in the sand. And I sort of talk about what it means to feel like prey or to be prey and to be a predator. But I wanted to be very clear, you know, that what I'm actually talking about is the human experience. And like, I'm talking about decisions made by humans, not like the, you know, survival instinct of a worm. And so I wanted to be clear in those moments and like say explicitly, like this is where the connection drops. And I also structured most of the book to sort of be these two narratives between me and the creature that switch off and don't necessarily come together, except in like specific moments when I'm encountering the creature or something, to sort of make sure that people are like aware of the fact that I'm trying to tell these stories side by side to look for resonances, but not to conflate the two. The sturgeon essay, which is, it's about sturgeon, the fish, but it's also a story about your grandmother's survival in World War II, that one really struck me because it had a really, many of the essays have these human parallels. And something that struck me about that one is that it, both of those are about historical existences. Like the sturgeon, who is this ancient creature who's been around like 200 million years, like what, you know, a time period that is and not possible for me to really understand. And then there's like the history of your grandmother. So I was wondering how you pulled those stories together. They're not necessarily, you know, clearly aligned with each other. There's this dying fish, this fish that is endangered, and the story of your grandmother trying to escape China in World War II and the immense, immense danger that she and her family were in. How did you bring those two tales together? 
I'm so glad that you liked that essay. We almost cut that one. Really? Um, <laughs> because, yeah, because it felt different from the rest of the book, I guess, because I'm less present in it. I learned so much about how a collection comes together. But a lot of these essays had different origins. Some, it was always clear, sort of the conversation between the creature and myself or the part of my life that I was looking at. And then there were other essays where I knew one part of the story that I wanted to tell and needed to find sort of the other counterpart, whether the creature came first or the person. And I knew I wanted to write about my grandmother because I think many people who have grandmothers or grandparents who immigrated from one country to another, I feel like you grew up being like, that's my grandma. Like we go to the Nordstrom Cafe and we eat like tomato soup. And then like one day she like, is like, I escaped a war. <laughs> like I was shot at. And also, like my grandma, whenever she tells me these stories, she is like, I'm so boring. Like, let's talk about you and your job, like reviewing toasters. And I would be like, no, like that's not what I want to talk about. And so I knew I wanted to tell her story and the story of my family and how they escaped China, fleeing Japanese troops to go to Hong Kong and then Taiwan and then America. And I wasn't sure what creature would be sort of a good parallel. And so I tried to think about something that my editor, Jean Garnett, who is just a genius, told me to do in, in our early conversations about the book, which was to try to flip the lens that we often deploy towards creatures on ourselves. So, you know, we think about creatures as these whales have these immense migrations, like what would a human's migration look like? And in tracking my grandmother's journey, so much of it took place on the Yangtze River, which is a river in China. And so that felt like a very good sort of anchor, geographically speaking, to focus the story. And I guess I just knew about the Chinese sturgeon because I'm very interested in all things marine and freshwater, but sturgeon are such a, I find them very charismatic. They're all gnarly. I love any kind of like giant river fish. And I had been following some of the efforts by the Chinese government to restore populations of the Chinese sturgeon, which are not going too well because there are all these dams that are blockading the sturgeon's traditional migratory route. And I think at first, you know, I was like, oh, the sturgeon, it's been around for a long time. And like my grandma's old, which was like not like enough to sort of hinge the narrative on. But the more I looked into the story of the sturgeon and the story of how this river has changed and how much it has transformed to become unrecognizable to the fish, I think it just reminded me of like how my grandma, if she were to, to return to this route, like it would look so different. And the villages that she saw, the buildings she encountered, like have all been replaced and modernized. And sort of that feeling of having this almost evolutionary connection to a place or, you know, an ancient connection to a place that you would no longer recognize. I think that was something that I tried to write into and to bring those two stories together. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Sabrina Imbler, author of How Far the Light Reaches. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. I have the writer and curator Jordan Stein on the line. Jordan Stein's latest book is Rip Tales, Jada Feo's Estocada and Other Pieces, and Jordan's going to recommend a book. Thanks, Kate. I will recommend a brand new book. Mostly I'm 
digging in decades past for things, but it just came out maybe a couple of weeks ago. It's called Eat Your Mind, The Radical Life and Work of Kathy Acker by a writer called Jason McBride, who lives in Toronto. Acker was an artist well ahead of her time, primarily a writer who lived in the Bay Area, among many other places in her life. And I found it such an interesting experience, not just because of Kathy's peripatetic turn it up to 11 kind of life, or even the way that she was so radical in her approach to appropriation and storytelling, but because Jason does an incredibly admirable job of writing a fairly traditional biography about someone who defied tradition at all costs and at every turn. So you learn how anti-narrative she is. You learn how anti-character she is. You learn how anti-plot she is, how she's even anti-imagination. And the whole time you're sort of trudging along from one chapter of her life to the next. And I found the dissonance there so excitingly strange that it made me just applaud her life and work and Jason's effort. And I just can't recommend it highly enough. So is he writing aware that he's doing something to her she would never have wanted done or she also wanted to be a legend, right? I mean, did you get a sense from the bio that she would have liked it or been put off by it? From what I know of Kathy Acker, she wouldn't have mind if anybody said anything about her, especially if it was in the affirmative. To his credit, he never apologizes. He's a scholar and he's a writer and he's got a job to do. And and I think she would raise a glass to his efforts, despite the fact that when she went to work, she was up to something completely different. Are you a Kathy Acker fan? I have a relationship with Kathy Acker that I have with very few artists, which is that I can't get enough of things written about them or interviews with them, but I find the work really, really challenging. I don't know what to call that type of artist. Sort of embarrassed. I feel a similar way. I shouldn't admit it about about Ursula K. Le Guin. I read her writing on writing and her interviews, and I find myself completely galvanized. And then I try the first paragraph of The Left Hand of Darkness, and I hate to say it, but I'm just, I'm completely lost. It's me. I just have have a child's imagination for it. I can't handle it. Wow. Well, that's a brave thing to admit, but I I know I relate. I'm sure I know I have people like that as well. I don't know if I should say we should cut that. I hate going on tape with it, but maybe in the name of developing scholarship around artists who are unbelievable in some ways, but you can't really entertain the work itself is it's worth it. And you know, you can always keep trying because when you're drawn to someone like that, you know, usually there's a reason and sometimes they open up many years later and you don't know why. I hope so. So I hope you enjoy some Kathy Acker at some point. I'll keep trying. (laughs) Great. Can you tell me the title of the book and the author again? It's called Eat Your Mind, The Radical Life and Work of Kathy Acker, and it's by Jason McBride. Thanks so much, Jordan. That was Jordan Stein. His latest book is Rip Tales, Jada Feo's Estocada and Other Pieces. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Sabrina Embler, author of How Far the Light Reaches. This is actually somewhat related to this, because when I when I was reading that story, there's two very 
moving, I guess is the right word, but they stuck out to me. And there's a moment when your grandmother's on the boat navigating the Yangtze River and a Japanese soldier approaches them and they're terrified of Japanese soldiers and rightly so. But this Japanese soldier realizes that they are starving and brings them a bag overflowing with rice. So that's that kind of very human, you would say almost the Steven Spielberg kind of like, oh, you thought that this was a monster and it turned out to be somebody that was acting, you know, this human thing connects us. But the next time that as they're moving down the river after this, there's a moment where your grandmother's mother is afraid that they are going to be accosted by Japanese soldiers and tells her children that she will kill them first so that the soldier isn't the one that kills them. And this is an act, of, you know, it resonates in many ways with Toni Morrison's beloved, you know, that you're you're killing your child so that the aggressor, the oppressor, is not the one that brutalizes them, right? It's an act of mercy. So I was thinking about animals, and forgive me if this gets a little woo, but like, I have a lot of friends that are into somatic experiencing, and one of the fundamental tenets of somatic experiencing or a way that they explain it is actually how animals process trauma, right? So your grandmother's telling you this story, like in, in a way kind of reliving this trauma, the memory of her mother telling her that she would kill her is something that lives with her, right? But that when animals experience trauma, they apparently have these physiological reactions, like one is to shake or to shudder. And then that disperses the, quote unquote, like the energy of the traumatic event, and then they don't have it. And we, I have people like this in my family too, you know, that are like, as human beings, it's like we get stuck in these like trauma formations, these narratives. And I wonder if in some ways, the long question that I am getting to here is whether or not in your writing about animals, you see that there is a capacity for resilience and overcoming things that you wish that we could bring over into human experience? Because animals are literally, there's a moment you talk about the cuttlefish. What does the cuttlefish look like when it's not fleeing, right? That's mostly when we see the cuttlefish do these amazing things. It's fleeing or it's hunting. But, you know, what does it do when it's just by itself? And I'm just curious about that. Like, how do you think of the way that animals deal with trauma and the trauma that we oftentimes put them through versus how we cognize trauma? That's a fascinating question. And I also was not familiar with somatic experiences. And I'm like going to Google (laughs) a lot after. My apologies to my friends and others if I've gotten any of that wrong, but that's one (laughs) of the metaphors that I remember hearing. Yeah. I mean, I guess the specific anecdote that you bring up of my grandmother's mother, you know, sort of explaining what she believes is an act of love and an act of care. And my grandmother like interprets as this deep violence and fear that she has carried with her for her whole life. I think it reminded me, I mean, I think the book is full of acts of care that could appear like violence and also acts of like violence that are sort of cloaked as care or as interest. And I think this comes up so frequently in scientific research, right? Like as a science journalist, I'll frequently write stories about scientists discovering new species or, you know, taking like a look at an endangered seahorse population and trying to understand how many seahorses there are in this one reef. And to do this science, you often have to capture and kill the animal. That's how you describe a new species is you take a specimen and you take its DNA and it is both like an investment in the population's future and in our ability to know and understand this animal. And it is also, you know, an act of killing. And I think 
you know, it's always interesting to see how people receive those stories because I think sometimes just like working in science journalism for a long time, I'm like, oh, that's just what has to be done. And I think it's helpful to hear people's reactions and remember like this is an act of, of trauma or of death for these creatures. A specific image, like the sturgeons that are jumping and jumping and bashing themselves into this dam, but continue to do so. I mean, there's something tragic about that, but there's also something kind of like badass about it, that it's like they just move on, you know? That sturgeon image is so moving, and I think I cried when I first read about it. And it reminds me of this story that I actually read this week about I think a North Atlantic right whale named Moon, meaning we named her Moon, like, I don't know, her whale name. But she was hit by a, a boat of some kind and it sort of made her spine shaped like an S. And yet she still completed her enormous migration from one part of the ocean to another. And though she wasn't able to use her back fin, she just breaststroked the entire way. And it was sort of this example that scientists shared of like, this is how strong like this whale's evolutionary urge is to complete these migrations that are like so a part of their life. And also knowing that once this whale completes her migration, like she will likely die because she will have exhausted all of her possible energy. It's interesting to think about sort of these instincts that may not even be a part of an animal's like plan <laughs> if it has one or not. And it's easy to valorize those, right? But it's also, I think, heartbreaking to think about the ways that we can interfere with these longstanding traditions, which I think it's a way of describing an evolutionary practice, right? Like a migration is the tradition. And I think specifically around the idea of trauma, the essay that first comes to mind is the last of the book, which is about this jellyfish called the immortal jellyfish, which I learned about in this beautiful New York Times Magazine feature, sort of written about the scientists who study this jellyfish, which have the potential to age backwards. So these jellyfish will grow up, become a polyp, which kind of looks like you're like a little tree <laughs> rooted on something. And then you sort of bud off medusas, which is the name for the bell shape that most adult jellyfish have. And if these adult jellyfish are injured, they can regress and become a polyp again and then sort of grow up again. So it is described by many as being immortal because it can technically survive a lot of trauma. But the ways that scientists study them is to take these populations of jellyfish and to essentially put them into cycles of trauma, right? To watch them regrow. And it was so interesting to read these scientific studies where they describe like the best methods to trigger this regrowth, which can be putting the jellyfish in really hot water, putting it in a really salty solution of water. One of the preferred methods is to drag a needle over the jellyfish like 50 times because you need to give it enough trauma to not be able to survive it in its current state, but not too much trauma so that it would kill it. And it was so interesting to read this story about the jellyfish, which I think sort of, it's told with this tone of hope and possibility, right? Like what could this jellyfish teach us about our own mortality or what secrets could we extract from this jellyfish? But it's also, I think it was a moment of sadness for me, even though, you know, a jellyfish is probably not capable of sensing this pain or understanding pain in a bodily way. like it still is sort of thrust into this looping cycle of trauma that we are putting it into because we're interested in it. And science is full of those weird moments of 
you know, extreme violence toward a creature that is both in pursuit of research and also often in pursuit of our own selfish reasons behind that research, if that makes sense. I wanted to ask you about scale, because I think one of the difficult things about studying these creatures and about the ocean in general is the scale is so vast. And the differences of scale in terms of the creatures that you look at who are range from minuscule to immense really varies. I think these things are really difficult. And, you know, something like immortality, (laughs) the kinds of scales and ideas that are elicited in this collection can be a little difficult to sort of think about and envision. And then sometimes we're also dealing with really diminished scales, like a creature that used to exist in immense numbers that is now, you know, in the hundreds or whatever. So I was wondering how you think about an approach scale when you are thinking about these creatures, when you're writing about them, how you make it maybe more of a comprehensible kind of, or understanding how these creatures live and how to present them. This book and science writing in general can exist on this like greater than human scale when you're talking about evolutionary time, geological time. Something that I was thinking about a lot while writing this book was shifting baseline syndrome, which is a scientific concept to sort of describe like when we look at the sea now, we sort of determine like this is a healthy reef and this is not a healthy reef. But our notion of what a healthy reef is, is like very contextualized by all of the past centuries of human interference with the ocean that has caused the reef to be this way. And so there are a lot of cool papers out that are sort of imagining like what was a healthy reef truly like hundreds of years ago before like Western civilization came in and sort of changed the nature of these oceans. And it feels like a wonderful space of possibility to imagine what historical populations of whales looked like, right? Like what would a world with 360,000 blue whales look like? Like I can't even imagine it. And I think that was something that I did have problems trying to explain because it kind of is unimaginable. Scientific numbers can exist in scales that are just almost impossible to grasp. Like there was a study that came out recently that tried to estimate the number of ants in the world. And it was like, I don't remember the exact number, but it was like, I fundamentally cannot understand this number. But I think, especially with these moments of trying to understand historical animal populations, I think it is important to try to reach toward that impossibility, like towards these ungraspable things, because it reminds us like, you know, we're at this state right now, but maybe we could reach more into these healthy histories of the ocean. And I think it also reminds me of like what we've lost as an example of what we continue to stand to lose in reefs that remain healthy. And I think it was also helpful, I guess, in another essay where I think about scale is the cuttlefish essay where I sort of look at the evolution of cuttlefish across geologic time. And that one was really helpful to think about, like, I wanted to expand the possibilities for myself as well, like, and think about what kind of bodily change is possible on 
not an organismal scale, but I guess like on an animal scale and to think about the moments in which animals have truly changed the nature and the capabilities of their bodies like all exist in evolutionary time. And to think about like, what would it look like to harness the powers of evolution like in my own life or in my own imagination. And so I think playing with scales that exist outside of our human conception felt like a way of leaning into possibility and leaning into like, dreams and imagination. And I think also a way of understanding things that feel like, for example, a breakup, like larger than life in the moment. (laughs) One last question that I had for you as we are wrapping up is, as you were researching the various animals that pop up in this book, were there any things that you learned that really either shocked or excited you, surprised you? What was the thing that you did not see coming when you were looking at animals, which is what you do a lot of anyways. So it's like, what was the thing that stuck out to you? I'm just thinking about whales right now. And I was familiar with whale fall before writing the book, which is the phenomenon where a whale dies in the ocean, its body sinks and it sustains entire communities of organisms, which is such a magical thing to think about, like this sort of succession of isopods coming in, feasting on the flesh, sharks, snailfish, hagfish, all these fish eating the flesh, and then the bone taking over. It's just this sort of beautiful succession. But I didn't think I realized until learning about the previous historical abundance of whales that, you know, when you remove 300,000 whales or something from the ocean, that is both a tragedy for the whales, but also the creatures whose lives have evolved to depend on these falls. And so when you take away the whales, you also take away all of these other creatures, these worms, these shellfish. And that was when I learned that the scientists estimate that two thirds, I think, of the communities that depend on these whales may have gone extinct when we removed all of the whales by whaling from the ocean. Just as an aside, I think I had heard this number before, but reading it in your book again, that there used to be 360,000 blue whales, right? Which are the ones that we all recognize from the books. You know, they're big as a school bus. They're like the classic thing you think of when you think of a whale. And today there are less than 10,000 and that that number is dropping. And this phenomenon of whale fall, which I had not ever heard of until I read your book, it created, you know, at some point you might have had 360,000 of these little underwater sea gardens that were sustaining all kinds of life, you know, in addition to the whales then consuming some of that life as they, you know, process photoplankton and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, it is fascinating and also tragic. I love describing it as a sea garden because that kind of is what it's like. It's like these oases in the bottom of the sea. And I think a lot about what fossilizes, right? So like with whales, it's easy to see if a whale has been somewhere because its bones are so large. If something is hard, if something is a vertebrate, it's very easy to, or it's much easier to be recorded in the fossil record. But in the case of the bone worms that may have, you know, depended on these whales historically, like their bodies, if you're mostly water, you're not going to be recorded in the fossil record, which is something that I also learned about in writing about selps and sort of how scientists are like, why are there all these gelatinous blooms of creatures that we've never recorded before? And it's like, these things wouldn't have been immortalized in the fossil record, right? And I think a lot about these creatures that are slippery in memory and in, I guess, the ways that the earth remembers things. 
And I feel just incalculable loss at like what we don't know and what probably was. And I also was able to sort of draw connections between like, yeah, the kinds of people that we tend to remember and the people that we forget, meaning, yeah, queer communities. But I guess the last thing that I found surprising is going back to Whale Fall, I knew about the creatures that would eat the flesh, the creatures that would eat the bone, but I didn't know that there was a fourth stage of whale fall where the whale, the bones of the whale are no longer being eaten, but they become something like a landscape on the bottom of the ocean. And they create substrate, which is so important for creatures like anemones and sea sponges that need to latch onto something because most of the bottom of the ocean is just like sludge. And it's hard if you need to grip onto something to live in the sludge. But it was so magical to think about how these whales are still sort of giving and still being in collaboration almost with living communities that are like living on top of the bones of the whales. I thought that was so beautiful. So that is one thing that I was really stunned by in the process of research. That I think is a wonderful note to end on, to start with the tragedy, but then also rescue the collaborative beauty of it all. Thank you so much, Sabrina, for joining us. We've been speaking with Sabrina Imbler, author of How Far the Light Reaches. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd really love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Ji-Ha Lee. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vodden. Thank you.